listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Water Tanks. Pioneer's exclusive tank liner fabric, Aquilina Fresh, is 100% made in Australia. So you know exactly what goes into making it and the high standards it is made to. Pioneer Water Tanks, leading the way in water. Welcome back to the Central Station Podcast. My name is Steph Coombs and I'm your host. Have you ever wondered what it would be like growing up on a cattle station? Well, if you have, you're in luck because in this episode, I'm sitting down with Pip Bain, who grew up on Mount Clare Station in Western Australia in the early 1990s. You know, before the internet was around and people went to school of the air through two-way radio. Yeah, back in those days. In this episode, Pip talks about her love for rural Australia and how she's followed in her family's footsteps to pursue a career in the pastoral industry. Now, in this episode, we're very fortunate that Pip has also chosen to speak very candidly about losing her mother through suicide when Pip was just 18 years old. And Pip also speaks about how important it is to keep the conversation around mental health going in the bush. I'd like to thank Pip on behalf of Central Station again for speaking about something so private and difficult and she's she's done it beautifully and I think a lot of people will ta- have something to take away from this episode so I hope you keep listening. Now, as I've just mentioned, we will be talking about mental health and suicide at some point in this episode. So I will be putting links in the show notes below. If you are struggling in any way, shape or form, it doesn't have to, you know, I'm not necessarily saying if you're suicidal, but if you are having any sort of struggles, please, please, if there's one thing you can take away from this episode, just reach out to somebody. I'll put links in the show notes below to Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Men shed, you know, there's there's so many services available across Australia. Some online, over the phone, through text message. Um, there's there's you know even just going to your GP. Um, please do just reach out to somebody. All right, let's get on with the episode. Hi, my name's Pip Bain, and I grew up on Mount Clare Station. Whereabouts is Mount Clare, Pip? Mount Clare uh, is about 200 kilometres northwest of Megathara, uh, and it is officially in the Upper Gascoigne Shire, um, but right on the southern boundary. Okay, and for anybody who hasn't had the pleasure of travelling through Western Australia, where how would you describe Megathara or the Gascoigne region? Um, uh, well, when you've seen the rest of Australia, um, it's... Um, it's it's unique in its own way. It's a very different country to somewhere like where we are now. Um, we're currently up in Broome. Um, yeah, dry, rocky, shrubby. There's n- not a lot of grass left anymore. It's all um, it's all old sheep country, so it got pretty flogged out in the older days. Would, um, you, would you say it's if you draw, you know that line that cuts NT and SA in half? Mm. If you kind of draw that across... 
to like the middle of WA and then have a line going up and down the middle. Is it somewhere or is it a little bit more on the eastern side, isn't it? No, yeah. If not, I mean, people have got Google Maps. They really should just Google Maps. Exactly. It's pretty much smack bang in the middle. Of WA. (laughs) Okay. And so, yeah, it's like a semi-arid shoplands. It's very arid. Um, I don't even know. If you could just think of um, a desert with trees. (laughs) Yeah. And lots of shrubs, clay yes. pans, gravel. Uh, we didn't have any clay pans. Oh, we were on the Gascoigne River. Oh. Um, or on part of Gascoigne, on the yeah. headlands, I should say. Um, so, yeah, a lot of flood-out country. Um, yeah, in a, in a good year, it was beautiful. There's just no other way to describe it. But in, in the dry, it is, um, yeah, it was bloody dry. <laughs> and so Mount Clare was a family station, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Was it on your mum's side or your dad's side? Dad's side. Um, so it was founded by my great-grandfather, Eni. Um, he came out from Scotland when he was eight and grew up in Katanning. Um, was fought in World War One, tenth Light Horse. Um, wrote a book. Um, yeah, read up on it. <laughs> um, Wait, so he wrote a book? Yeah, yeah. It's oh, called, wow. um, called The Ways of Life. Uh, by Annie Bain, and um, it's a a really well written um, sort of memoir on yeah the life of a he, he did a lot of droving, um, and then yeah took on Woodland Station, which is right next door to Mount Clare, um, and yeah sort of one son took on Woodlands and the other son took on Mount Clare, and um, yeah and that's so my dad grew up on Mount Clare. Okay, so it was your dad's dad, your granddad that took on Mount Clare because Annie was your great granddad yeah yeah wow imagine coming all the way from Scotland to (laughs) Mount (laughs) Clare like I mean I've only been to the southern part of Scotland actually no I've driven up through the highlands but and I'll I'll be honest I've been there once but most of my experience in Scotland is watching Outlander um (laughs) god knows if they actually even film in Scotland who knows but it is nothing I can make of that no no it's not very very different but they were a different breed back then they were tough. So robust and adaptable. Yeah. Like, just... You had to. You didn't get a choice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, um, he, uh, yeah. So, my grandfather, um, uh, Alan Bain, um, for those who <clears throat> were wondering, um, he he was a bit of a pioneer himself. Did a lot of droving as a kid. Um, and he was one of the first people to introduce Grey Brahmins. To the Gascoigne. Really? Yep. Um, he's got a fair bit of history up here in Broome too. He was one of the, uh, he was a manager of Anna Plains back in the day. Wow. So, yeah. I see where the Grey Brahmins come from. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yep. So he was um, definitely, uh, yeah, broadened his horizons. He, um, we had really good friends in America. So he knew all about the genetics and stuff happening in the States. Um, yeah. Um, so then my dad, uh, like I said, grew up on Mount Clare um, and met my mum uh, in 1975. She um, she came out to be a governess, but long story short, my grandfather stole her off another station. <laughs> um, Dad needed a cook because the one he had was not doing so well. And um, yeah, so grandpa and mum flew up to uh, Yinnathara Station where my uh, Dad was managing at the time, and um, yeah, the the I don't know. That's the rest where it is all <laughs> Yeah, the rest how, is history. How did he actually steal her though? 
Um, so she was meant to go to Meanbury Station as a governess, and um, I'm not sure how um, carved in the stone that was, but yeah, um, Grandpa and some of the employment agencies were good mates, and Grandpa said that he needed a good, reliable woman. And they said, well, we've got an ex-nurse from New South Wales, Newcastle. Um, if you want her, you can have her. So <laughs> she got auctioned off to the highest bidder. <laughs> so you kind of got a three-for-one. You got a nurse, you got a cook, and then a future daughter-in-law. Yes, he did. <laughs> it's pretty thrifty shopping. <laughs> Grandpa knew good quality when he saw it. Yeah. Oh, it's all about the genetics, whether it's cattle or human. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Got to keep those breeding programs in line. Yep. And if you've met a Bane, we're all tall and blonde. So <laughs> my mother was neither of those. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, what was it like growing up on a station in the... So do you call it... So Gascoigne... I guess Gascoigne different to Midwest. Yeah. Or if we yeah. want to get particular. Because yes. we don't want to offend anybody who lives in the Midwest or Gascoigne. Yes. Yeah. It's like telling somebody from the Kimberley that they're in the Pilbara. Yes. Don't do it. Yeah, it's a bit like, yeah, I mean, if you really want to get local, you don't call someone from the Murchison from the Gascoigne, yeah. vice versa, or even Meekathara Shire. Good Lord knows what happened. <laughs> so, sorry, for the record going forward, where are we saying that you know, that <laughs> I grew up in the Gascoigne. Gascoigne, okay. Now, what was it like growing up on a station out there? Tell me what it was uh, like, I guess, I suppose you've mentioned a little bit of the country, but what it was like in terms of just a station, because they're all so different, what kind of made up Mount Clare? Um, a river, a gold mine, um, a lot of grazing country, a lot of flood out plains. Um, I mean, it was, uh, it was 300,000 hectares. So, uh, the crew did a lot of camping out. Um, and from memory, there was about three or four sets of yards. Um, and yeah, I mean, as a kid, I, I don't actually remember that much of the property, but, I do remember, you know, things like um, going for, this sounds nostalgic, but going for picnics up in the rocks and finding um, Aboriginal art, um, going up to what we called the gold mine, um, and, yeah, we'd find fool's gold. Um, there was all sorts of old shafts and cool old stuff up there. Um, silly things like going down. We had a creek really close to the homestead, and we'd go down there, uh, my sister and I, and yeah make cubby houses and take we'd go down um uh we used to go down looking for bush tucker and stuff like that and my sister would always have to pull out a packet of sayos from her backpack <laughs> because we never found anything <laughs> what specifically were you looking for um cogglers what's which, that um i guess they're kind of like a bush pear in a way okay. that you can they're I don't know, if you get them at the right time, you can eat them whole, but um, usually by the time we found them, you had to sort of peel them and, yeah, they're pretty tough and awful. <laughs> I think I'd rather a packet of sayos um, and bush potatoes and stuff and all. But, yeah, you sort of um, – we had a lot of Indigenous um, stockmen in the camp and my sister being 10 years older than me, they would uh, teach her what to look for and, um, yeah, we'd go on these big adventures with our horses and our backpacks and – try to yeah starve ourselves to death <laughs> until you had no choice but to rip into those sayers oh yeah those sayers are lifesavers <laughs> they would have been especially if they had the little bits of salt on them like that's oh. the most satisfying part of the whole like yep. cracker yeah if she really thought ahead she'd bring out sliced cheese <laughs> oh yeah now uh mount claire I was, i'm trying to build a bit of a picture uh, also not just for the listeners but for myself 
um, a lot of the stories that we've had on our website uh, centre around really northern properties, which are quite different to the Gascoigne. Gascoigne um, doesn't have a defined wet and dry season, would no. you say? You can receive no. winter rainfall. Yep. Yep. Um, like we said before, it's semi-arid, um, historically quite um, degraded from sheep mm. days. It was old yep. sheep country. Yeah. So how many, do you remember like sort of how many cattle you ran or how, how mustering worked there? Um, mustering went for a, probably, a, I don't know, I want to, no, to me it seemed like it went all year. We always seemed to have people there. Um, uh, from Mary, we always did two rounds. Um, and I, I want to say that each round maybe went for six weeks. Yeah. Um, so probably not much different to how things work. Now in the Gascoigne, that's probably on average most places muster for about six weeks. I'll do two rounds. Um, sometimes they'll do a, a first round, which will just be like a little half round, and then the second round will be the big big show. Um, but yeah, we have crews of up to eight blokes, um, and yeah, all horses, um, all horses and, and buggies. Um, probably one of my favourite memories from growing up was. Um, Mum, we had this little Suzuki that we called the Butterbox. So it was all closed in. It was very safe, I promise. And Mum would lay a mattress in the back. And she'd throw me in the back with a bag of Barbie dolls and a bit of Lego. And um, she'd go out mustering. And the Barbie dolls and the Lego would end up flying out the windows. So I'd end up playing with all the sticks and leaves (laughs) that came into the buggy. Um, And, yeah, I just, um, yeah, camping out. Um, we had a, a windmill called Timara that had a little shack and a old pump mill, and yeah, it was just it was just nothing to go down there and camp out with the boys for a couple of nights um, and help in the yards. We were my whole family was really involved in the property. Um, you know, there was no such thing as the women stay at home. Um, Mum was just as involved as anyone else. Um, and I was tag girl, <laughs> so I'd load the tag gun for <laughs> for the boys. So. What else do you remember about your time at Mount Clare? Because you didn't stay there for, no. for for a long time. No, we moved. Um, we moved to the Midwest in about ninety eight, ninety nine. So I was only there till I was about seven or eight. Um, but funny enough, it was it was long enough to really have that outback way of life really set in in, in stone. Um, I've forever loved stations and and working on them and there's something about when you drive into a homestead there's this feeling of coming home for me and I don't think it matters what homestead I drive into this um and I've worked on a lot of places in the Gascoigne and Pilbara and all that and every time you drive into a homestead it's the same feeling of like I know uh yeah that the oasis of trees green lawn um it's usually in a really pretty spot by a river um so um yeah, it's. I love that driving into a homestead for you is this big, like, coming home feeling, like, warm and fuzzies. Oh, Whereas yeah. for me, driving into a homestead is like the anxiety 101. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, which one is the homestead? Which one is the quarters? Where's the cookhouse? Like, am I going to the right place? Where, where should I park? Am I going to be parking in somebody's spot? Are they going to think I'm an idiot for parking here? Like, oh, oh. my God. Like, that's my internal dialogue <laughs> driving up a driveway. All, Whereas all I your... worry about is the pet bull rubbing on my. <laughs> On my mirrors or something. Yeah, whereas you've just got, like, it's probably this nice music playing in the background, mm-hmm. like, you're just coming home. <laughs> oh, yeah, pretty much, pretty much, yeah. So, and I mean, it was, oh, Christ, we had the life. We really had the life. Um, I I was a rat bag. I, I, I will admit right now, I was the biggest rat bag of a child. 
um, I would wander all the time. Um, it was usually only between the chook house, the horse yards and the workshop. Um, and I'd go down and annoy the boys um, in the workshop or I'd go steal molasses out of the horse shed or, I don't know, annoy the chooks. Um, but I was known to wander down to the creek a lot and I knew I was in trouble when Dad had to come look for me on the motorbike. <laughs> and I, I remember, I don't remember him finding me, but I remember hearing him <laughs> and shitting myself. So, um, but yeah, uh, TV didn't, we had a TV, but it didn't work. Um, school of the year, I only did one year. So was that over two way though, or was that? Yeah. Yeah. That was the old, you know, morning, Mrs. Smith, you know, over, <laughs> um, but it was all colouring in and crayons, so it wasn't, yeah, there were just beautiful memories. So you have this pretty idyllic childhood growing up at Mount Clare Station, and then when you're eight years old, the family sells up and decides to move from a station to a big farm. Yeah, um, so we didn't, south. we didn't sell until 2002. Yeah. Um, we did what everyone's doing now, and we bought a property uh, um, yep. just west of Karnama, mm-hmm. Um and it decided to go into drought straight away. Oh. <laughs> I don't think it rained for the four years that we were there. Um, but um, that was definitely a huge step for my family. I mean, the, the station, we, we were having horrible bloody droughts um we just we couldn't seem to catch a break um and so yeah dad thought we'll buy a farm at least we can take the wieners and the cows down there and give the property a break um as far as management went I'd love to think that my dad was ahead of his time um but um that was just his mindset and um so yeah we bought the farm and um he used to fly from Karnama to the station and back again in a day. Um, just like a, a little fixed wing? Yep. yep. We had a little Cessna uh, 150, which had a one... I'm not very good at my planes, but it was a 175 or a 185 engine. So, I mean, uh, if anyone who's met my dad, he's about six foot tall and three foot wide. And um, <laughs> and so, yeah, he reckons it was like flying a, a mini minor with a V8. <laughs> he could take up on a clay pan and, he yeah, it was his little pride and joy. Um, but asking himself and he absolutely hated flying so um but he just had to do it it just came with the job and then eventually you guys made the move permanently down to the farm yeah yep so we sold the lot um sold the lot in 2002 and we bought two properties uh just east of walkaway uh, which is geraldton midwest um and we've been there ever since and what was that like going from station life to farm life because, I mean, farms are still pretty, it's kind of still a pretty big playground for a kid. Oh, yeah. They're pretty different as well. It it took me 10 years to forgive my parents. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, there were many tears. Um, uh, yeah, I, I it took me a long time to call uh, the place where we are now, Mount Michael. It took me a long time to call that home. Um, and I think it wasn't until I started going away and working other places um, that, yeah, I was sort of a little bit more proud to call Mount Michael home. It would have been pretty different because at the station you always had those people coming and going and a stock camp. Did you have other staff on the farm or was it kind of just the family and maybe no. one or two? Yeah, no, it was just the family for the first, oh, God, yeah, 10 years. Um, or, yeah, eight years. Um, and, yeah, we just we, we ran the two properties. So we had... Um, 
oh god well one property is 1400 hectares and the other is 1800 hectares um so we ran the two together um god knows how many cattle we ran everyone called us absolute loonies um you know we were the partialists that came to the west and apparently we didn't know how to grow grass um we sure showed them (laughs) that's for sure um and um yeah we we took on a lot um and you'd think that coming from some some place that it's 300,000 hectares to you know just under 3,000 hectares um you'd think that the workload would be a lot less but it was not there was it we are intense to say the least yeah a lot more intensive I suppose the station was extensive yes um did you have to move to school in town then? Were you close yeah. enough to a town? Yeah, yeah. So started, um, yeah, day bugging, I guess you'd call it. Um, what on earth is day bugging? <laughs> so my mum always called it. Um, I guess you had your borders and your day bugs. And so I was a day bug. <laughs> I never heard of the term day schoolers, but okay, yeah, day bugs, cool. Yeah, uh, yeah I guess that's a Sydney term. <laughs> so would you just... Catch a bus? Yeah. How long yep. was the bus ride to get oh, to school? Oh, God, it was like 10 or 15 minutes. It was great. Oh, that's not bad <laughs> yeah. at all. Basically a yep. city kid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, Geraldton was a city. It had everything that we ever could have asked for. Um, it had an ocean. I I had seen an ocean before, but we weren't big swimmers or anything like that. Um, yeah, and, and being going from, like I said before, my sister was 10 years older than me. So that have been a harder adjustment for her, do you think? Because she had so much more time on the station. No, she was she was done and dusted. Or she, was she like, yes, I'm like, because she would have been closer to 18 then, wouldn't she? Oh, she, um, so she'd left school and she'd done a year working on the station with dad. Yeah. And from memory, I think she'd actually gone to Queensland. Oh. So, um, yeah, she might have to correct me if I'm wrong. But, yeah, no, she wasn't home. So she'd well and truly flown the nest. <laughs> so you have your whole life picked up and moved not to town, because you're still on a farm, but yes. a lot closer to town than you were. Um, did you, how did you cope with missing station life? Did you try and, I mean, it's hard when you're a kid, you don't really have the option to get in a car and drive and head out to no. a station. You're kind of reliant on your parents. So what did you do to try and cope? Um, oh, I was outdoors a lot. Um, I mean, got, got from one paradise to another, really. Um, the property where our house is, is sounds so idyllic. It's not as pretty as it sounds, I promise, but it's nestled at the bottom of this big breakaway range. Um, so pretty much right out my back door was this fantastic um, sort of hill, I guess, and it was full of wonderful new bugs and insects and trees and flowers and... Um, I still remember the first time I saw an echidna and promptly tried to bring one home. <laughs> oh, my God. Tell, no, t- I didn't know. Like, I've never yeah. seen one in a while. I yeah, want one. we get um, echidnas all the time. Uh, echidnas, bobtails, Oh, bob- pythons. Yeah, everyone's seen a bobtail. No one cares. Your Let's- bobtails up here are not what I thought were bobtails. <laughs> Wait, are yours bigger or smaller? Ours are bigger and they actually have like, a, it looks like someone's knocked off the end of their tail. Oh, Whereas yours have like a pointy tail. I, we saw one the first night we were here and I, yeah, <laughs> I was running around lie. the hotel trying to find this lizard. <laughs> That's crazy. But like echidnas, we don't, I want, I want an echidna. <laughs> they, um, Did you try and pick one up? They're really heavy. Um, just for the FYI, um, of all things, I had a broken wrist. Um, I always had broken bones. Um, and I remember wrapping can't if if you get them when they're trying to dig a little hole 
just forget about it. You'll never move them because they managed to anchor themselves in the dirt. Wow. But this thing was crossing the road. And so I just picked it up with my cast and um, wrapped my jumper in between me and the echidna because they are really prickly. Uh, yeah. Um, and I carried this thing probably a good, like, K and a half home. And my arm ate for about three days and my mum made me let it go. And I was oh. devastated. <laughs> I would have been too. That's a lot of effort to put in. You're like, Mum, this is a pretty cheap pair. Like, I know, I know. And it was going to remulch her entire garden, but, um, you know, it, it literally headed for the hills as soon as oh. I let it go. <laughs> it was like, see you, bye. Yeah, pretty much. Um, did you, when was the next time you got to go back out onto a station? Oh, all the time. Yeah, we, um, we're regulars at the Landor Races. Um, dad was involved in the committee. Um, I've probably missed about two years in my entire life. Um, and, um, yeah, so got to go up all the time. Um, auntie, aunties and uncles. I still had a lot of family up in the Gascoigne, um, Mika Parashires. So was going up all the time to visit them. And I also had godparents south of Carnarvon on a sheep station. Um, and I guess that's where my work ethic for the um, partial industry really got set hold because um, I'd go up there for school holidays and um, yeah, help with shearing um, and of course as a kid working with sheep is a lot different to working with cattle um, in the cattle yards as a kid your parents are always worried about where you are and are you going to get run over or is something going to chase up the rails um, whereas a sheep they can sort of just let you go a bit more <laughs> um, so yeah I spent I think my first shearing I did when I was about 14 and by the time I was I think I had my 17th we always were shearing on my birthday so every year I <laughs> moved up the ranks a bit more and by the time I was about 16 or 17 I was um yeah I was the boss's 2IC and helping him um as far as making decisions I, I wasn't in that but I was definitely sort of running a crew of a couple of backpackers and um, yeah, I just, I loved it. And I don't, I think I stopped working there when they sold the property in about 2012, 13. Wow. Um, what, when did you finish school? Did you, did you actually finish school? Yeah. Or did you yep. Yep. So through to year 12. Yep. So I, all up, all up, I went to six different schools. Um, of course, Mekathara School, the Air, Karnama, and then Walkway Primary. And then... Mum wanted the best for me, so she sent me off to PLC. Um, Perth Ladies College? Uh, Presbyterian oh, Ladies Presbyterian. College, yes, in, in only it... the best peppermint groove, if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> and don't get me wrong, fantastic school, but adjusting from being this little free willy on a farm to being confined to a boarding house. Oh, would you have had to wear those like hideous long skirts and like little hats? Uh, we had the hats and uh, the, the Panamas and berets, uh, yeah. depending on summer and winter. On berets. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And we had to have it, you know, to a certain angle to the left. And, oh, it was, yeah. Um, <laughs> rules and me didn't get along all that great, especially dress codes. Um, I was always forgetting to put my ribbon in my hair or... Um, yeah, so mum got my uniform bill at the end of the year because every time you forgot to put your ribbon in, you could go to the service desk and buy a new ribbon. So I would buy about three ribbons a week because I kept forgetting to put them in my hair. My poor mum was getting the bill at the end of it all. Um, but yeah, the school, um, undoubtedly was fantastic. And, um, I remember, um, you know, loving science, loving English is my favourite subject. I'm 
terribly dyslexic and yet I loved it. I think it was the teachers were really raw and they just, they loved their job. So, of course, that was um, contagious. Um, But my time there was limited. I only lasted two years Um, and the boarding just wasn't for me. So I came home um, and I went to Jolton Grammar for a year and a half and that was opposite. The school did not suit me at all um and um yeah I just didn't didn't fit me so I ended up finishing um year 12 at Morawag and I walked out of there with the ducks and a heap of awards um and a yeah a really bright outlook on life wow that's um it's so good that it turned out that way because it's hard enough going through those years as a teenager as it is, even if you're in the one high school, navigating that period of your life, but to have so much disruption and to be changing. Because it's hard, you know, you go somewhere for a bit and you really have to stick it out for a bit to go, is it me? Like, am I not giving this enough of a crack or is this just not the right fit? Mm. And by the time you... And then you... So you give it a good period of time, but then... Yeah, no, and I, um, to this day, will be forever grateful that my parents, um, they really, you know... They understood, you know, Dad had been to boarding school. He started boarding school when he was about, oh, my God, nine or something, if that. Like, you know, all those boys got sent to school really, really young because education just wasn't a thing out in the stations. It was hard work. Um, so he he didn't get it so much, but my sister had a rough time at school and my mum had to watch her really, like, just... Um, go through five years, well, actually, no, so it was only about four years in the end, um, and she had no options, you know. They were still living on the station, um, so there was no option of coming home. So um, my sister, unfortunately, yeah, she had to gruel it out, whereas mum sort of went for me, oh, bugger it, we've got the option, we're bringing her home. And it, to this day, I will forever be thanking my parents because it was the best decision they ever made. Red Range Stock Supplements is a locally owned, family-run business based in Kununurra, Western Australia and services the whole northwest. They offer a range of custom blended supplements for cattle and horses tailored specifically to your individual requirements. For more information or to discuss your supplement needs, please visit redrangestocksupplements.com.au. And so what happened when you left ag school? Where did you go next Um, with this great outlook on life? Oh, yeah, home. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, packed up the the ute and the horse float and drove straight to back to Yenathara, of all places. Um, That was... So that's when mum and dad first met. Oh, yes, okay. Mm. Um, So, yeah, not that I had much to do growing up in Yenathara, but I sort of went back to the home roots. Um, and my best friend's family, um, owned it at the time. And, um, so I did a bit of work there. They were in a awful drought. Um, and yeah, I, it was a really rude awakening to what life was actually like on a pastoral station. Um, you know, I had these nostalgic memories of, you know, um, good looking 16 year old men and, (laughs) um, you know, horses galloping around and campfires, um, only to be met with, you know, dragging dead cows away from windmills and, um, you know, feeding out hay at mills and seeing carcasses. I'm not going to lie. It wasn't pretty. Um, and so we went from Yenathara, um, they also bought another property closer to Carnarvon. 
Um, and we did a bit of goat mustering. That was a um, wake-up call. I'd done a little bit of goat mustering um, south of Carnarvon, uh, but this was a whole <laughs> new um, sort of adventure. Um, Talk us through mustering goats versus cattle and sheep. What do they, how do they, are they, do they go off the principles of stock handling for cattle, like with flight zones and yeah. the formation of a mob? And- yeah. If I knew what I was doing, it probably would have been a lot easier. <laughs> Is this true? Is this true? Um, yeah, you know, one of those things I'd done one Neil McDonald working stock school and I thought I knew everything and um, yeah, I had no freaking idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, they're definitely different. Goats, um, if a goat doesn't want to walk, he will just lie down. And there is no kicking, screaming, thrashing, pulling you can do to convince him to move again. And um, and they're, they're really cheeky um, and they will just, a whole mob will just blow and they'll run in about a hundred different directions. Um, whereas at least cows, you know, you've got your, you know, you sort of your herd and they'll stick together a little bit more, but no, nah, goats. There, there would be days when we would get up and we'd go out, we'd start mushing at 5.30 and we'd get a mob together and then by two o'clock in the afternoon we'd have nothing <laughs> you have just single-handedly convinced me to never go go mustering in my life unless there's like 12 helicopters and like 14 dogs yeah well it was all and a moving a moving hessian like yeah, wing yeah. around them <laughs> we needed uh, it was that that was sand dune um sand dune and clay pan country and um i just am so glad i was on a horse on a bike because um yeah at least horses don't get bogged that's all <laughs> i could think of <laughs> Oh, and then where did you head? So you're working on friends' places for a little bit. Yeah. And then yeah. when did you branch out to go to your first property that wasn't kind of connected to your family or friends? Um, so I, yeah, came home from goat mustering probably about, um, oh, my parents went over east uh, for a holiday in March. And so I came home to look after the property. And um, in that time, I scored myself a job on Yanri. Um, and yeah, sort of the, the plan was to, um, drive straight to Yanri as soon as mum and dad got home. Um, but plans changed. Um, unfortunately lost a really good mate in a car accident, um, which it, it rocked me, I think, cause it was, um, we, like I, my family's pretty, uh, well known to grief, um, and so it was sort of pretty hard, though, for the first time to lose someone who was actually really close to me. Um, I said I was I was 18, um, thought I had, you know, the, the best horizons ahead. And um, I just remember driving up to Yanri thinking, like, what am I doing? <laughs> um, and, and actually driving into the Yanri homestead um, was probably the first time I drove into a homestead and, and didn't feel that that you know fantastic feeling because I think I still had so much baggage at home um but in saying that got up there um uh jumped into the stock camp and um yeah we did a couple of months mustering um around Yanri, Kadari uh, we went out to Sheila um yeah did all sorts of things I definitely learnt that I had no idea how to um you know work a mob properly um it was I sometimes wonder if I missed out on learning a lot of things because we moved off the station. So, um, you know, at, on the farm, we don't 
really work big mobs of cattle um, the way you would on a station. Um, and we definitely didn't handle wild cattle. Um, so it was a huge learning curve. Um, would you, and Would you say it was the first time, I suppose, though, that you weren't in a somewhat sheltered environment because you yeah. didn't know them, whereas when you're on your family place, like it's family, and then yeah. the other people you knew knew the family. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely the Depledges and the Baines have a, a very long family history. Yeah. Um, and um, so it wasn't so much that um, I wasn't surrounded by friends and family. It was just that um, all of a sudden um, a job was expected of me. And, yeah, I really had to um, sort of pull my boots on and go, you know, put my big girl panties on and um, go to work. And, um, yeah, it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, And it was, yeah, like I said, it was a really big learning curve. Um, So much so um, that I I probably didn't deal with it as well as I could have. And I asked to be moved from the stock camp to the cookhouse. And I became the station cook. But that would have, you know, it's a huge year for you, though. It's your first time kind of going out solo or independent, you know, Mm. even though you said you guys had a family history. But the first time where you've kind of been like, you know, a guest or a friend or, you know, just an extended part of the family, whereas you're now a real full-blown employee. Yes, I was on the books. (laughs) And then you were so young, you know, um, and you're coming in your teenage years, which I think for anyone is, you know, just a journey in itself yes um and then you're dealing with the grief of or like the first real loss or, or mm. big loss in your life so that's a lot to I think a lot of yeah. people can find it hard to adjust to their first station job full stop <laughs> without but, throwing in the glitter yeah. yeah without throwing in all the extra yeah. stuff that you had with you now was that when mama and papa bear to pledge still lived there no so they had moved down to the farm mm-hmm. and they were based down there but they were still well and truly involved in everything um and yeah so there was a lot going on and um yeah both joe and jane um were yeah well and I, i'm so glad that i got to spend you know that time with them because they are oh that whole family they're just bloody awesome so so many people listening i suppose who aren't from the pilbara or wa in some way shape or form may not know the depledges but they are basically the greatest family of <laughs> they all are. time yes um so there's yeah i i won't there's mama and papa bear to pledge then they had three kids but then you know then they're married and got their families that way as well and oh my god like i have never like i just yeah there's oh. no words like you can't like yeah, no, they are absolute all legends awesome. and just amazing people. Yeah. And I've got to stop myself, otherwise I'm going to go on a tangent <laughs> for the next ten minutes about how. Oh yeah, no, join the club. Um, no, they were fantastic, and especially like I said, you know, I was, I was finding it quite hard in the stock camp, and um, they, instead of telling me to just, you know, get on with it or get over it, um, you know, they really did go out of their way to make new, well, not a new job for me, but the cook happened to be leaving and they needed a new one and. Yeah, it was easier to replace a jillivery than it was a cook. So, um, yeah, I ended up in the kitchen. And I think I I really enjoyed cooking, actually. I, could you cook? Because, like, no. I could not have cooked <laughs> at that age. Nope. Um, I'm pretty sure that a pledge's uh, phone bill went up a lot because I spent a lot of time on the phone to my mum saying, how do you cook a roast? How do you make mashed potatoes? How do you boil eggs? Like, how long do you boil these things for? How do you know when they're cooked without cracking half of the damn things open? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I learned a lot in the way. And it's just simple, 
life skills of learning how to cook a meal. I mean, I could cook. I could cook steak and I could bake bread and all that sort of stuff, but I couldn't put a meal together. And my mum was a fantastic cook. Like, as a kid, I, you know, she would feed 10 blokes and just, you know, wisp all this food on the table and it would just be amazing and then there'd be dessert and, you know, and she did, she was like a duck on water. Um and here I was, you know, my hair was a mess. There was flour all over my shirt. There was gravy on the roof. And <laughs> and I somehow used to put, you know, oh, God, a couple of veggies and a bit of meat. Meat, meat and potatoes. That was Cobb's favourite saying. Just meat potatoes, Pippi. Just meat potatoes. <laughs> I can hear him saying that, especially when you just said Pippi. Like, just because oh, giving yeah. you a nickname. I've just been like... Oh, yeah, we all had our nicknames. And um, I won't go repeating mine on, on air. <laughs> oh, and so... How long, when, how long were you at Yannery for and at, one, at what point did you change from stock camp to cook? Um, oh, oh Jesus, um, it was 10 years ago, Steph. I'm I quite... know. <laughs> Unlike I... most of the recent people I've interviewed, you are not heavily pregnant and you cannot blame this on baby brain, so um, why don't you have a great memory from 10 years ago? Oh, God, uh, you, I'm just you know I'm blonde, right? <laughs> I'm just wondering, um, did you spend more time in the cookhouse or the stock camp? Um, I want to say it's pretty half and half. Yeah, okay. Memory. Um, and even then, when I was cooking, I would still go help in the yards and then rush back and cook breakfast for the truckies or like. And actually, it was fantastic. Anyone who wants to go work on a station but doesn't want to go, um, you know, get into the nitty gritty of mustering, go be a station cook. It is honestly the gateway to heaven it you you your own boss you end up in a room full of food there's always chocolate <laughs> um and you can when you're not busy you just sneak down to the cattle yards and you can sit on top rail and watch or you can get involved um th- there is just this th- it's just a horizon of opportunity as that is far the as... most euphemistic description of a station <laughs> cook i've ever heard in my life oh but it's um, true i think it's a job is, you know, a job like being a station cook, there are no boundaries. Um, as long as you put food on the table and keep the kitchen clean and if you've got to look after the garden like I did as well, I, you know, as long as you, as long as you keep everything alive, yeah. the potty calves, the workers, the garden, you'll do fine and what you do in your spare time is up to you. Um, and so I think, whereas when you're in the stock camp, you wake up at 5.30 and you have breakfast and you go do this and, and you've always got something to you know um that's really not as like, much free time no not at all and and you really do like as i'm not saying that station cooks don't have a job to do but like it's stru- the structure's a little different it is a lot different and um yeah I'd, I'd go back to being a station cook any day except for the fact that i'm allergic to food because it makes my ass swell <laughs> oh my god i didn't realize that was an allergy <laughs> i think i suffer from that too how do we get tested aside from looking in the mirror <laughs> Um, how did you find it? What I want to know and pick your brains about is you had, you were struggling a bit in the stock camp and this is the point where most people would cut and run or (laughs) I've got so many stories of people I know who have just like left in the middle of the night, Mm -hmm. um, in all sorts of different jobs on stations or, you know, just left on bad terms or just, you know, kind of, um, held it all in until it kind of explodes, but you managed to stick out the rest of the season just in a different role and kind of keep keep face and, and stay there how do you do that because I feel so many of us would be like well no if I didn't 
now I'm using a big air quotes here, succeed at the at the stock camp job, like, well, I just can't be here. But you completely blew that idea out of the water. <laughs> um, a mix between ignorance and stubbornness, I think. Um, maybe they're the same thing. I don't know. But I just, I, I guess I didn't know how to quit. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to quit. Do not get me wrong. I, there were days I... I'm pretty sure I went to Joe and said, that's it, I've had enough, I want to go home. And um, he said, oh, you know, Pip, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. Like, you know, you're just having a bad day. And it definitely taught me a lot in the way that, you know, we do have bad days and sometimes you've got to mark them on the calendar. Um, but don't forget to count your good days. Like, you, you know, bad days always seem worse at the time, but it's just because that's the moment that you're in. Whereas when you're having a good day, well, you, you don't think about it as much yeah and so it's um yeah it's that like I said I, I I wasn't I was given the option to quit but it just wasn't an option um and um yeah so I just kept on trudging on um I mean there was yeah like I said there was definitely um the, yeah there was definitely good days and bad days and it wasn't necessarily because of the crew or anything like that um I mean god I was probably dealing with unknown mental health problems at the time that I had no idea about. Um, But, um, yeah, that was just what you did. (laughs) Imagine the job of, you know, Joe and Jane and or any station manager anywhere. I mean, people not just back then but today, you know, not only are you employer to and and leader and boss to all your staff, but when you have such a lot of people will have at least a few young people in their crew, you're kind of like a pseudo-parent as well. Oh, and they nailed it. They were the best surrogate parents that, you know, you could ever ask for. Um, (laughs) I just want to adopt them so bad. (laughs) Um, I might have told them that as well. And they're like, okay, strange lady, please keep your distance. (laughs) No, I mean, yeah, the the whole family, and, you know, it's funny, I I used to spend a lot of time on the phone to Pole, and um, it's funny because... I'd met Paul, but I don't remember it. I, I must have been drunk. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, at the age of sixteen, God knows. But um, no, I um, so I spent a lot of time on the phone to Paul, and before I knew it, you know, phone getting a phone call from Paul, even though it was for her to go st- to speak to Janie, um, it was really nice, and and they did really become a, a really close family, and um, I was lucky enough to see Paul, you know, in um, really recently. Um, on really good conditions and I said oh my god you know Paul we used to spend so much time on the phone and you know and yet I've never met you properly and she's like well you know yeah we, we did meet and I'm like well I don't remember it she's like well I do <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. she's like look at me with my memory beating <laughs> the young person woman's had three kids and has a memory like an elephant <laughs> but yeah it was um they are uh, yeah and, and like I said I, I think it really does it. it. It separates the the good from the bad managers in the way that um, you know a manager that can really treat young kids in their in their crew. Not you, there's a fine line between treating them like family and spoiling them, and treating them like family and giving a bit of tough love. Um, and I think knowing that line and knowing you know when to give them a pat on the back and tell them they've done a good job. 
and knowing when to say, right, mate, come on, toughen up. It's just a bruise. Like, and I mean, that's the thing, though. Like, you can go to ag school and, you know, get your certificates and your diplomas in ag. You can um, go to a stock handling school or a working dog school. You can go to a land management school or, you know, read up on this stuff. Oh, you can have a uni degree. <laughs> when, when do you go to school to learn how to deal with other people and, like... Like, oh. looking after cattle and country is one thing, but being, like, it's not just that. You've got to be a people person. Yeah. Like, you've got to be able to work people as well as cattle. And... Yeah. No, and they all, I remember they used to send us away on, um, on uh, what do you call it, work experience. Yeah. Biggest waste of time. I actually, I honestly didn't even do work experience um, because I remember a Dad saying, A, it was, I'm pretty sure it was in November, so everyone had pretty much finished mustering, um, and... I remember, I, I think I wanted to go back up to Carnarvon and do work experience on um, on the, the family friend's property. Um, and the school said, oh, it's too far away. We, we won't go up there and check on you. And I was like, oh, I'll give you a ring or something, you know, when I finish work. Anyway, Dad said, no, nah, listen, there's no point doing work experience if they're not going to go let you actually go and experience what you want to go do. Um, so, yeah, nothing, nothing can prepare you, I don't think... Well, from, from, you know, from my point of view, nothing could prepare me for what I was about to walk into. Um, but looking back, it was the best thing I ever did. And you stuck out the whole year and finished the season? Almost. Almost. Um... Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end ag industry, while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au. Oh, God. Um, so I, I was going to finish a little bit early. Um, we had Landor coming up. And like I said before, Landor was like the highlight of my life. Um, and so I was going to knock off and go to Landor and I was going to go home from Landor. There was only a couple of weeks left of mustering. Um, and then I guess I'll start from the beginning. Um, so I was cooking dinner one night and um, noticed it was pretty quiet. The boys hadn't come in for their beers and nibbles and dip. And um, Cobb came into the kitchen and told me they needed to sit down. And I, my heart was going a hundred miles out. I thought he was going to, I actually thought he was going to sack me. <laughs> and like, I, you know, I, um, and then he had this, this look on his face and I'll, I'll never forget it. It was just this, it was the look of anguish. Um, and I knew something really bad had happened. And my first thought went to the kids. I thought something happened to kids. And he sat me down and he said that, um, my mum had died. So as an 18 year old, just struggled with, oh, I don't know, I say six to seven months, you know, 700 kilometres away from home. Um, to be sat down and told that was a huge kick to the guts, <laughs> to say the least. Um, 
I I could not commend that family anymore for the way that they handled that situation. Um, I was given all the privacy, all the support. Um, I didn't have to think about anything. They did everything humanly possible to make that situation as comfortable as possible for me. Um, so I, yeah, I, I remember crying a lot, obviously. Um, and it wasn't really until about, I want to say maybe four hours later that I realized that my mum had committed suicide. So, um, it was really hard for me. And it's funny cause, um, the last I'd rung her that day cause I was cooking a roast and oh, the, that's right. I ran out of gas. The gas bottle ran out halfway through cooking this roast and I've rung mum because I couldn't undo the bloody screw because Blondie here didn't realise that gas bottles are left-hand thread. So I'm battling Anyway, so mum's quickly righted me on that and we had this really funky little, really, it was, it, it was really a happy conversation for someone who was going through what she was going through at the time. Um, and um, yeah, we, I remember she giggled at, we were giggling about, you know, um, me, you know, looking after all these blokes and I think she was probably getting a bit nostalgic um, in the way that that's how she started, you know, she started as a station cook and um, all the kids had find the coop and here I was battling it out um, in a hot, sweaty little kitchen um, and I was, I guess in a way she was proud of me because I'd done it. I'd wanted to quit so many times and she said no like you know you can do this and I did it I was about five days from packing my swag and driving out um and yeah got to go home four days early (laughs) um so yeah that wasn't easy um and it was definitely changed the relationship between it's strengthened the relationship I want to say between Definitely Cobb and I, you know, um, we'd gone from being very much, um, he was the boss and I was just some young ditzy jilleroo, um, to going from, he was my mate and I'd like to consider myself one of his mates. Um, and we really built, it's funny cause I didn't see him again for another about four years. Um, and it was, I remember driving into driving into the homestead and getting that warm, fuzzy feeling of coming home. So that was, um, yeah, that was nice. When you said it was about four hours before you realised how your mum had passed, is that because they waited to tell you or you just weren't processing at that point in time? I had no idea. My mum suffered from depression. Um, uh, mum had not had an easy life. Um, she nursed her dad uh, until he passed away from cancer when she was 18. Um, quit nursing school, moved across the country to marry some good-looking, tall, blonde fella <laughs> um, and start a family on a property nowhere near a city. I mean, my mum was a city girl. She was as city as they come. Um, and so she had a lot of struggles to deal with. Um and then uh, to top that off, um, in, um, in 88, 
um, mum was involved in a car accident. Um, it was a, two people lost their lives and one of those people was her son and he was three years old. Um, so dealing with not just, I guess, that sense of isolation and she had to just completely readjust her whole life for love because we do these things, um, you know, she now has to deal with, you know, losing a son, um, being charged by the courts for the death of her son. Um, I mean, you can just imagine, you know, it's bad enough losing a child, let alone being blamed in front of everyone for that. Um, uh, you know, there was, from then on, there was quite a few deaths in the family, um, from, you know, uh, we lost dad's brother, um, and then dad's best mate. And I'm from memory, they all went within about five years of each other. Um, so they say things happen in threes. <laughs> um, but you know, mum, um, I don't know, once again, you, you just got up and you got on. Um, I suppose that's how it was though in those days, which thankfully isn't now, but, um, when we were preparing for this episode, and you had told me about this, you mentioned that she would have to drive down that same road mm. where the accident happened. Yep. And every time she went to town, which was about, oh, yeah, sometimes once a month when the roads were open. Um, yeah, no, every time she had to drive past the same spot, which just... And it's funny, I didn't get shown the spot till, oh, my God, till I was about 15, 16. Um, and it's funny because... Sometimes I'll drive down that road, which I do, I drive down that road a lot, um, and I won't even notice it. I, I'll realise I'm past it, you know, uh, kilometres away. And sometimes I'll drive past and my heart will be in my mouth. Um, and there's, you know, they say that, you know, spirits and all that sort of stuff aren't real, but I kid you not, I've driven past there on sunset. I, I don't know when the accident happened, but I remember one night I drove past there on sunset and there was a light coming over the hill, but there was no car. So, and the sun was going from the other way. So I don't know, maybe there was a windscreen in the scrub or something, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, just having to deal with all that, um, countless droughts, um, you know, uh, um, dealing with a family that's not your own. I mean, you know, we were a family business, um, so she had to deal with my grandfather who, um, as much as he was an exceptional person, fathers-in-laws, you know, sometimes don't, you know, they can make things difficult and easy. Um, but yeah, so there was, there was a lot to deal with, but I think her main goal was to watch her kids grow up, which she did. Um, and she, you know, I think it was funny that day on the phone, you know, she was like, oh, you know, you're all grown up now. You know, you've, you've done it, you, you know. And um, I think she just, she'd had enough and it was her time to go. And um, people can call it selfish. They can um, they can call it what they like. But I think when you've dealt with what she dealt with for 30 years, and God knows what before that, um, I reckon it was the most selfless thing that anyone could ever do. Her main goal was to watch us kids grow up. Um, and I think she well and truly fulfilled that. Um, she gave us all the tools that we would ever need. Um, you know, my, my sister's now a, a mum. Um, I'm still floating around, but that'll, <laughs> um, you know, 
she really did. She gave us, I said, the, the tools to, to carry on with life and I think be the best person that you can. Um, just be kind to others um, was always one thing. She always used to say to me, if, it does, if you can't say anything nice, don't say it at all. And um, there's definitely times when I probably didn't listen to her as much as I should have. Um, but, yeah, and, and just be whoever the hell you want to be. Don't worry about what other people want from you. As long as, like, as long as us kids were happy, um, you know, like I said, she pulled me out of two schools, you know, just to make me happy. Um, so all she ever wanted was our happiness. Um, and she always put her family's happiness before her own. Um, we will never know the struggles that she dealt with. Uh, you know, um, she was seeing doctors. She was on medication. Um, she was seeing psychiatrists, psychotherapists, counsellors. Um, and, and she did have fantastic friends that she talked to. Um, but we will never know the extent of her demons. And I think... You know, since since losing her, I guess that's become one of my real. Um, I'm not going to say it's not a passion. It's not something that I wake up every morning. I want to ad- advocate mental health, but it is definitely something that um, I, I really do believe in. Is that if you have something on your mind, or if you um, are having a bad day, you know pick up the phone and tell someone, you know, whether it's uh, a friend or, you know, a family. Um, I have a dog and that dog probably thinks that I am clinically, you know, unwell um, because of the, you know, I I think getting stuff off your chest, um, seeing a medical practitioner, psychiatrist, um, and just having a good old chat to someone can really make you feel a lot better about yourself. You can clear a lot of things up. Um, things always sound different when you say them out loud. Um, I mean, I'm going to listen back to this podcast and, <laughs> and um, yeah, think very differently of it. But yeah, when when you mental health shouldn't be something to be ashamed of. Um, I suppose the thing is, I feel like mental health and mental illness get mixed up. A lot, whereas mental health is something everybody has, just like we have mm. our physical health, yes. Yes, and correct, it's something Jackson. that has to be maintained, like our physical health. Whereas mental illness is something different altogether. Yeah. That's when there is an illness. Yes. So everybody has mental health, and we all have to take steps. You know, just like we go for a run, or we play sports, or we eat our vegetables to maintain yeah. our physical health. Yes, um, you have to do certain things to maintain your mental health. But while you're at school and you are put into phys ed class or home ec, mm. um, and you learn all those other things, how to look after your... Health is not something we're taught health. at school, no. No, and never spoken about. And it just makes me... I don't know the word. It just makes me sad that your mum, you know, what did you say? It was at least, you know, over 20 years since her son passed away. And the just I know the lack of support there would have been around. Oh, but yeah. there's actually out in a station. Yeah. Like, if and when she could have found someone to talk to. And like yeah. you said, it was that real, you just got on with it. Yep. You just moved on attitude. Yep. And that's just not how the mind works. No. Like, and I mean, and let's be blunt, you know, we definitely were not the only family out in the Gascoigne to lose a child. Um, you know, I a lot of kids my age 
have buried a sibling. Um, it was not uncommon at all. And I think, um, you know, for mum, um, coming from the background of which she did, you know, she is, she was one of five. Um, their futures were set out for them. Her, um, her father was a doctor. Her brother was a lawyer. Um, and all three sisters, and including and herself, were all nurses. There was no question about it. You were to leave school and become a nurse. And... Um, so for mum to sort of turn around and say, well, I don't want to be a nurse anymore. Um, yeah, there was no support for, you know, yeah, the family didn't know how to to deal with that, I guess, in a way. Um, and letting her go was their way of dealing with it. And it was the best thing they ever did because otherwise I wouldn't be here. Um, but yeah, there was, and like I said before, um, getting right back to my great grandfather, you just got on with things. Um, you know, he came back from World War and, you know, gosh knows what he'd seen over there. Um, and yet he built a, you know, a sustainable, um, profitable business off it. Um, and it was, you, you either got it or you don't. I think when it comes to, um, yeah, mental illness, um, some of us have the tools to deal with it um, built into us and some of us don't. And, um, you know, especially for me in the past 12 months, um, I thought I had all the tools um, until I, I had a pretty big breakdown um, and went to a, a, um, a practitioner. And, yeah, I was, I was diagnosed with... Uh, I was only diagnosed with mild depression and anxiety. But it felt weird to all of a sudden be stamped with a mental illness. With the label. Yes. Um, it was not something that I'm proud of, but at the same time, it made me get off my ass and go talk to someone who could help me deal and give me the tools to move on and, and move forward and, you know, um, just little things like writing in a diary every day. Um, I think it's important. I just want to quickly pull you up on when you said it's something I'm not proud of. I really want to get the point across that it's not something to be ashamed of either. No, though. definitely not. Um, when I say it's not something I'm proud of in the way that... Um, I think you should be proud that, you, that you've that you gone out... on it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, the thing, I guess, with being stamped with that label is that it presents... The symptoms manifest differently in everyone. How person A has depression and how per- person B has depression may be completely different. It isn't a... It's not like, oh, I have a cough and you just have a cough or, mm. you know, it's not like I have a fever and, you know, you can just measure the fever at this temperature and that's what it is. And everyone who gets this has this kind of fever or diabetes or whatever. Mm. And we all present the same way. Mental illness presents differently on such a spectrum in different people. Yes. So yeah. the fact that you, that you kind of cottoned on and when yeah. you say some it, of us it, have it <laughs> built into us and some of us don't, I think a lot of that, has to do though with your upbringing and what you're exposed to growing up because if you're in an environment that never talks about this and you just don't know about it then how would you have these skills or if you're in a very different home that has you know a lot of discussions about this or if it was taught in school then you're kind of obviously set Mm. up to have those tools in your toolbox so even if you don't have those tools with you right now you can always gain them oh and they're out there we are in a there is so much support out there at the moment for this sort of thing. Um, 
you know, there's... It's so nice to think that, you know, um, our generation, like our children, are going to get brought up in a world where mental... um, uh, you know, mental issues or depression, anxiety, all this, it's not going to be something that's hush-hush anymore. Uh, anyone um, can talk about anything um, from your sexuality to, you know, if you're having a bad day, um, you know, it's, it's there's nothing to be worried about anymore because the only way I can think about it is we're not racist to these things anymore. You know, it used to be you didn't talk about mental health because, you know, it was wrong. You just, you just didn't. Um, whereas now I'll sit down with a couple of friends and we'll sit there and we'll talk about our mental health and we'll talk about the shit days and we'll talk about the good days and we'll have a little, yeah, um, nibbles and dribbles on how we're feeling. And it is really comforting to know that myself, my sister, our children, um, you know, will never have to deal with what my mum did um, because I honestly reckon someday she was hell on earth. Um, and, yeah, so as far as, you know, um, if, you, if you're having a bad day, don't feel ashamed about it, um, you know, and if you're having more than one bad day in a row, go see a professional. There's no shame in it. They are they are fantastic people. Um, the good ones have, you know, food on the table that you can eat while you're talking to them. Um, or they'll offer you a cup of tea. Um, it's not scary. It's, and yeah, it is, um, yeah, it's not something to be ashamed of at all. And I think it took me 10 years to realise that I wasn't working at my highest potential I guess um my highest happiness um but I look back now and it was yeah the last six months have been a real turning curve (laughs) I think it's incredible that you know after everything you've been through things could have gone it's not necessarily one way or the other but there's so many different paths you could have gone down and that this is where you've ended up and I know we're going to do another two episodes with you because lucky listeners (laughs) Yeah, well, this has only taken us up to 2010 and we've got the last 10 years to fill in. And Goodness. Looking at my notes, we have got some adventures to cover, but I just think, you know, what, how you've coped with what's happened has obviously impacted how the next 10 years or the last 10 years have unfolded and played out in your life because they all could have been very different mm. given the circumstances. Um, so your attitude is... It's hard. I was going to say commendable, but then I feel like a school principal <laughs> at, at like a, um, what are the assembly, but it's just encouraging. I don't know. There's, I'm not even going to try and put a label on it because <laughs> I think people get the gist of what we're trying to say is that your attitude and the way you've taken this in your stride and you can admit that it's not all just, you know, pick up and keep going. You have those stumbles, but you keep, but you know, you, you've asked for help and you've worked your way through it and you've acknowledged it's taken, you know, 10 years to kind of yeah, you know, work my way through it. Yeah. And I mean, and I'm I'm not even thirty yet, um, so um, that's it's never too late. Is I guess another thing I could really say is it's it's never too late, um, but it's also never too early 
you know, if if you don't put it off. I, I said I put off for ten years, and as much as the last ten years have been a huge adventure for me, I can't wait for the next ten years. And um, yeah, so just yeah, if you need a chat, pick up the phone, go around to your mates, and um, yeah, just have a chat. There's one thing we all need right now: a bit of kindness. In these uncertain times, it's important everyone makes an effort to be kind. Almost one million Australian kids are bullied each year. Together, we can change things. It's not just about being nice. It's about working together to make a difference in the world. It's Dolly's Dream. Be kind to each other. Visit dollysdream.org.au.